0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with A. Katie Harris, Associate Professor of History at University of California, Davis, to talk about her new book, The Stolen Bones of St. John of Matha Forgery, Theft, and Sainthood in the 17th Century. It's out this year, that's 2023, with Penn State University Press. Hello, Katie, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Great. I'm so happy to be talking to you. How are you today? How's California?
1: Uh, uh, the sun is coming through the fog. It's going to be a nice day. <laughs> Outstanding. Are you teaching this semester? I am indeed. Yes. So you caught me between right before classes are going to wind get going for the day.
0: Brilliant. Oh, this should I hope you're inspired. You'll go and, <laughs> and smile on your face. All right. So then let's, you're a busy, busy human being. Let's get into the story. So it starts here on March 18th, 1655, the eve of the feast of St. Joseph at 11 o'clock at night. Two Spanish friars, lay brothers of the traditional Arcasad branch of the order of the most holy trinity of the captives, left their Roman monastery and hurried out into the night. Um, outstanding opening to the book, and I love everything about it, um, including the fact that you know that it's 11 o'clock at night, exactly on this date, which <laughs> is such a cool thing about our, these sources. But so, uh, so that's how it starts. What happens next? Tell me the premise of this book.
1: Well, these two friars tiptoe across Rome. Um, It is, of course, the middle of the night. There is a curfew. um, So they are breaking curfew uh, and they traverse the city and uh, basically engage in a little breaking and entering. Um, They uh, bust into a small church uh, that lies in, at that time, what was a kind of quasi-abandoned part of the city. And they get into the church and uh, do a few little perfunctory, a few little preface things. They say some prayers and get ready for what they're about to do, and then they pull out a pry bar and they break and open the tomb <laughs> and uh, proceed to steal the bones that are inside. And the bones that they are concerned with are the bones of St. John of Mata, or San Juan de Mata, who was the founder of their order. He died in 1213 and had been buried in this little tomb, in this little church in Rome, and they steal his bones uh, and uh, take them back to their monastery. Um, they for some reason neglected to bring a bag with them. So one of the details that comes out of the the records is that they made a improvised bag out of the, an undershirt, which really is not the way you're supposed to be treating the relics of saints, but you know, here we are. So, <laughs> um, and, uh, then ensues the, the, the church is so, uh, nobody goes there, the church, nobody discovers it for quite a while. Um, but then there's there's a, it's the theft is discovered and there's a hue and a cry and there uh, are there uh, are condemned and but in the meantime, they have left they flee Rome. Uh, and together with their superior, their head of their monastery, and they tiptoe out of the city and head down to Naples, which is Spanish controlled. Um, and in Naples, they all three of them—the two thieves and their 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 boss—essentially get on a, a ship and sail back to Spain with their uh, ill-gotten booty. It's
0: it's it's quite a story. That's just the start. <laughs> That in itself is quite a story, like the the prayers and the theft going together, which makes perfect sense in this universe where you steal bones. Um, it was great. Okay, but uh, before we get to the kind of the the rest of this case, how did you find out about it? Where did you stumble across this? Um, you know, the, the, this
1: project uh, has a long and winding uh, course, as most projects do. Um, I was originally going to try to write a completely different book, a totally different book. And I did a lot of research toward that book, and then I'm not going to write that book. Um, so my, the original project was one in which um, I was interested in the Roman catacombs, uh, which are, you know, uh, the ancient cemeteries that lie underneath the city of Rome. And many of these are Christian, but they're also important Jewish cemeteries under Rome. Um, you can also find pagan tombs. Um, and I was particularly interested in the rediscovery of these tombs. They were never fully forgotten, but they were sort of came back to public attention uh, in the latter decades of the 16th century. And then begins this enormous kind of um, uh, process of removal, lots of bones being taken out of the cemeteries on the assumption that they the bones there of the Christian bones are of Christian martyrs who died at the hands of the Roman empire. And they get shipped all around the, uh, the, the Catholic world. Right. So that was the original project. (laughs) And that didn't work. Uh, there's almost too much material. historians, we often have problems. Like sometimes the problem is not enough material and sometimes the problem is too much material. Um, And there was too much material and I was floundering and I didn't know what to do. And I um, was exploring other avenues. And uh, one of the ones that came forward to me was I think I I think an old friend mentioned that, you know, he was aware of this case. Um, And. Uh, while I was trying to figure out how to s- rescue my book, <laughs> I followed up on it and uh, realized that uh, that the one of the main uh, centers, one of the main houses for this religious order, is located in Rome, and uh, kind of went over there one day <laughs> and talked to talked to uh, the one of the the. Uh, officials in charge of the church, um, and he said, "Oh, you should talk to Father so and so." And I ended up talking to Father so and so, who turned out to be a lovely person. Um, and uh, while the the Trinitarian Order is an international order, um, it is off, kind of heavily Spanish, and historically has been so. And. Uh, uh, this particular official, was uh, he's, he's from southern Spain, so he speaks Andalus Spanish, which is actually something that I speak. Uh, and so we communicated very well. And the next thing I knew, he's like, yeah, sure, you can look at our documents. And there they were. So sometimes you have to kind of poke around and go in the wrong direction a bit before you find the where you're going and uh, just play all the angles.
0: And sometimes one will work out. Wow, that's a great story. <laughs> that's really that's a lovely story. That's you know my, that's a, as good as it can be. I think really. Um. So that you've got this you kind know, of your documentary record that's pretty strong. Tell us about the sources. Oh, the sources are
1: wonderful. Um. They so the the this basically these are oh legal briefs for the most part. Um. And documentation of all kinds, letters, legal briefs. Sometimes they're notes jotted on pieces of paper and have been shoved into this file. And they're all from the, the 17th century. The, so the, the paperwork goes from the 17th century, some of it's 18th century, i didn't really look at the 19th century stuff because it really that was not beyond what i wanted and every once in a while i'd find something 20th century which would be interesting too you'd find a 20th century document put in there with the 17th century ones there was a logic to it um and they they're they're lovely some of them are a little hard to read uh especially when somebody's writing quickly Uh, They're mostly in Latin or Spanish, um, sometimes in Italian. So sometimes any given document will occasionally change languages on you. So you have to be a little bit on your toes uh, uh, in terms of of what language you're working in. But um, uh, and they're voluminous. They are they're often no page numbers. (laughs) there's no index there's no page numbers so the first thing you have to do is figure out what it is you have in front of you and where does it fit if it fits into what you're trying to do
0: <laughs> where is the stack with the understanding that if you're not the first person to look at it and you're not uh, who knows what kind of order it was in or is now or precisely precisely yeah, yeah. So you have
1: to you have to respect whatever order it's in. You mustn't reorder the paper, the the pages. Absolutely not. Um, that's that's really wrong, and it's just not done. But uh, you know, uh, the logic of the arrangement of the materials is not always evident. So a lot of the work that happens on the back end is figuring out what you have in front of you uh, what it's kind of dimensions are. Is it 500 pages or is it five pages and almost creating your own index? Um, There's a lot of, a lot of the historians work is this grunt work that nobody sees that is creating, creating your own finding tools, creating your own methods for trying to organize the material. Um, The, the, uh, the rector of the house, the the kind man who allowed me to use the materials, um, allowed me to take photographs, which is uh, was a godsend. Uh, and not everybody will let you do that. I've worked in many, many archives where they're like, "What? No, absolutely not. You can't take photos." Okay, I guess I guess I'm just going to do this by <laughs> <on my> hand. <laughs> um, but he allowed. He was kind enough to let me take photos. But then, of course, I have literally hundreds and hundreds of photos that need to be organized so there's a there's a kind of dual process of organizing there too um so and all of that comes before the actual analysis
0: sure (laughs) right sometimes before you even get to really read the document much less think about what it might mean right Uh, yeah Um, Yeah. And taking photos is great. You have it and you can come back to these points. But at the same time, I used to leave the archive knowing what I had. And now. Right. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Uh On the other hand, during the pandemic, the photos were an absolute godsend because, you know, of course, we were like everybody else on the planet. I couldn't go anywhere <laughs> there was no going anywhere there was no doing anything so i a lot of the pandemic was spent me kind of combing through the photos putting them in order figuring out what they were and and doing that kind of work um but yeah there's uh there's a lot of of deciphering on the back end that that is has to be done
0: yeah all right so there are a couple axes here upon which the story really turns, and one of them are uh, a relics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, what are tell our listeners what these are? Oh, relics are so interesting.
1: So the thing one has to understand is that um, when we talk about relics of saints, we're talking about um, in the in usually the the sort of the the the, the most common understanding is they are the physical remains of a person considered to be holy, um, or especially, especially holy. Um, there's more to it than that we could sometimes I like to define saints as, as God's friends, right. That, um, and so they're, you know, they're especially close to God, uh, in that, in a kind of friendly way relationship way. Um, and the, Physical remains can be anything from, you know, bones or hair in some cases, or if we're talking about relics of, say, the Virgin Mary or of Christ, right, that those two figures in, in Christian tradition didn't leave a body behind, right? Christ ascended to heaven, uh, Mary was brought up into heaven, and so it might it's not going to be you're never going to see because if I mean, anybody shows you a relic of Christ, that's Christ's like leg bone. <laughs> Don't take that one very seriously. That doesn't fit with the, the, the larger story, but you do find things like, you know, hairs of the Virgin Mary or breast milk, things like that. So physical remains, but it can also, those are what we call primary rel, uh, relics. Um, so sort of first instance relics, but there can also be secondary relics or tertiary relics. And these are, Objects that might have been used by that person, that special person, like a, a hairbrush or a pen or um, uh, a particularly important um, you know devotional book that the the saint carried around with with her. Um, or, in third instance, it could be something that has been touched to either a secondary or a primary relic. And there's a kind of idea of the charge of the sacred charge being transferred in a sense um, into the remains, into the object. Um, and that a person, a, a, a devotee, somebody who is who to whom that saint is important can in a way access the saint access that power access the the connection that the saint has to god by through the relic right um and there are more or less orthodox uses and approaches to relics and one of the things and so i of course work on the 16th and 17th centuries and this is a period in which the church is working hard to both promote the veneration of relics, which is rejected soundly by, by Protestants, right? Luther has, and Calvin in particular, Calvin has a lot to say on the subject of relics. Um, But so the work is the, the church is working hard to promote the veneration of relics, but also to kind of, uh, turn back or pull back, uh, tendencies amongst the lady, amongst the, the, the public to use them or to venerate them in ways that might be a little overboard, maybe a little unorthodox. Um, so there's an interesting kind of push and pull at this moment, uh, in which relics are both being promoted, but also you have church officials going, wait, 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 no, no, don't do that. <laughs> do it this way. Right. Um, to try to, um, I like to think of it as kind of like making canals. So if you have a river, right, rivers rush forward. So when uh, making a canal allows the river to run, but it puts it into appropriate
0: channels, right? Um, Oh, that's great. That's a great kind of visual for this because they're little supernatural bits, right? They're very powerful.
1: Yeah. They are understood to be very powerful and to have a relic, uh, um, I mean, the, the, there are there are rules on the books about who is allowed to have them and who is not. That doesn't just because a rule exists doesn't mean that people observe them. Obviously, um, but um, you know that they they are sites of power in a sense. And uh, this, no surprise, this is why we see both in the late. Well, actually, medieval period. I was going to say late medieval, but it actually spans a larger uh, time, not just the late medieval. And the early modern, we see important relic collections being put together often by powerful people, people. Um, but the one that first comes to mind for me is, of course, uh, the the Relic enormous Relic collection. Of Philip II, King of Spain, who has, if you go to the Escorial, the the palace uh, in in Spain, it's a fantastic palace. It's really interesting. But one for me, the big, the big draw is the Relic collection, <laughs> which is immense. Um, and uh, that's just one example. I mean, lots of it's kind of a, like a. a uh, kind of fashionable amongst the the nobility of the you know the second half of the 16th century and in maybe the first half or more of the 17th century to be collecting relics. Uh,
0: so powerful people collecting powerful objects, if you want. So fashionable for very powerful secular leaders, but just pa- fashionable maybe, but essential for uh, lay leaders for religious leaders, right?
1: For well, for religious leaders, you yeah, of course. I mean, so they too are collecting them, and any church, well, all churches are supposed to have relics, right? In order to consecrate a relic, uh, an altar, excuse me, you need to have a relic. Um, but uh, it, it's also that that uh, relics especially ones that acquire a reputation for being particularly powerful, um, are, are important draws for a church, right? So you want to attract people, you want to attract attention to your particular church or your monastery or your pilgrimage site. Um, relics are important for that, um, that, that, because they will bring people. People will want to come and visit them, come and see them, come and... Uh, You know, you asked to have them applied to their wounds or their infirm leg or whatever, seeking a miracle, that kind of thing. Uh, So they're they're important, really important for this period.
0: They're really important. You get brings people to see you. It brings it. This is a revenue increaser. Can be. Can be. Um, It also adds legitimacy. Yeah. It can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of
1: fascinatingly multi-purpose objects. Um, and, uh, but the thing I also like to think about relics is that we talk about them as objects, but they have to also be understood that the relic is a person, especially if we're talking about a primary relic, right? The bone of a saint in that they they operate. There's a kind of, um, that the the part is equivalent to the whole. So wherever a fragment is that the saint is understood to be present, wholly present there. Right. So, um, you know, you might seek out a, uh, you're particularly devoted to a specific saint. You you need to have want to ask a favor, want to help where that relic is a small fragment, you know, the tiniest bone fragment, the saint is fully present there um and there's a that that's a that's a real attractor
0: um that as as a kind of a site my next question may seem really idiotic but i there's a point i want to make with it <laughs> so, so so go with me on this but are they real
1: i don't think that's a a useful question to tell you the truth and that's a question i get a lot and i mean what does real mean uh, I mean, will I mean? I'll just turn it back, right? Uh, what does "real" mean? If you're saying, are all relics truly what people say they are, or what people claim they have are? Obviously not. But that's never the point, is it? Um, now, if we're talking, if 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 we're talking about, uh, say you know, uh, a relic of a fairly recent saint, that's highly likely to be because it, the recentness, the further back in time a, a thing is comes out of, right, uh, the more likely there is to be a certain kind of slippage. But again, it does, it's not really the point. The point is not, is the thing real, whatever that means. It's more, what is it that people say about it? What is it that people say about that object? Um, why do they say that? How do they say that? What are the stories they tell? That I think is a more interesting question. There's a kind of, um, I get this question a lot, and it's a kind, I always find it sort of like, well, why, why are, what do you mean by that? Why are you asking that? It's the, like, it's more interesting to, to ask the question of, well, what is it that people are saying? Than, than it is to ask about, um, you know, is it truly, in many cases, like, how can we possibly know? What are we going to do? Run, run
0: carbon-14 dating on, on these things? I, uh, like, no. And yeah. well, I to find whether that voice box is really San Antonio. But if it's been, it's, it's in the church. They say it's the piece of the saint. People have been coming to see it for hundreds of years. Of course, it's real.
1: Right. it's real in that sense whatever and whatever uh whatever they people say at a certain point whatever what is said is true at a at, at a certain level right um it, it's more
0: important in, in that way but at the same time there is concern about making sure these are verifiable there is absolutely. a fake relic trade that's very powerful sure. right
1: absolutely and this is this is one of the things that that my work gets into is that at, while yes, it's, it's in a certain sense, there's not a lot, like it is what people say it is that there is of course, the, um, a process, there are methods for evaluating, right? And this is particularly important for the church in this period, right? That there, there's a concern with evaluating and call it there's, you know, what kind of evidence is there, that this object is what people say it is. And so looking at the ways in which arguments are made about these things and the evidence that is brought forward um, and the nature of evidence changes in this period. Right. Um, If we look at older cases, you know, sort uh, sort of early medieval or sort of central middle ages period, there's, uh, forms of evidence like trial by fire, like say, so can you test a relic and s- put it in a fire and will it come out of that fire unscathed is a, is a viable method, right? And we have interesting records about that. By the time we get to the period that I'm looking at, nobody's doing that. It's all been put aside. There are interesting discussions on by scholars about how they used to do that, but now they don't. But instead, there's a lot of really interesting discussion about well, what are the what can we look for? How can we evaluate these things and put forward to the to the laity objects that we feel are have have as, as authentic as as we can evaluate, right? And evidence is always going to be flawed because it's humans that are making that, and anything humans do. The narratives we create, the stories we tell, um, the things we can know are ne- is inevitably going to be incomplete. Um, and so, working with that necessary incompleteness, you know, what can what how can we investigate these things? So, one of the things that um, my, my research works on or has looked at is the methods whereby these things are investigated and evaluated and what we see the, um, investigators and they're usually members of the clergy, but not exclusively, uh, examining all of the historical documentation and examining, uh, the, the kinds of records that are associated with these objects, um, looking at their physical characteristics really carefully, um, in the case of the, the bones, the stolen bones of, of St. John of Matha, one of the things that's put forward is that the bones are very carefully examined and they're very white colored, right? And that's, a, that's important. The size of them, the color of them, often uh, relics are supposedly have a special smell, right? uh it's called the odor of sanctity and somebody you can have a metaphoric odor of sanctity but you can also have a kind of a literal odor of sanctity um in the case of the bones of saint john of moth i didn't find anybody referring to the way they smell but in pre other work that i've done other research I've, i've lots of discussions about oh and by the way did you notice the smell the smell it's I can't define it what is it is it flowers no it's not flowers but if this this kind of the smell of, of holiness itself um, all of the human
0: senses if you want um, and then and there's an historical record around these as well right so we have historians writing the the history of bones absolutely there's a historical record and
1: uh, often, the bones themselves, any given relic will have, they're they're fascinating. these little tags, right? A tag or a label attached to it. Um, And we can learn a lot from the tags and labels. Um, There's, they they are, uh, the tags and labels, they're called authentica, right? So they authenticate the thing. Um, And we can learn a lot from the tags and labels just even by by looking at the handwriting on them. Uh, You could find a lot about the history of the thing just by looking at it. But, of course, there's provenance records and there might be uh, documentation uh, saying, oh, this was this bone was given by so-and-so to so-and-so. Here's the documentation attached to it. Here is the witness testimony attached to it. So we can look at things like that as well. Um, uh, all, All kinds of different possibilities for how to examine the authenticity, uh, of the, of these objects. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, and the authenticity of people. I mean, there are fake saints. Absolutely. Yeah. And
1: one of the, you know, one of the things that we see a lot in this period is the church being quite concerned about, uh, people living people, uh, at the time who are, being put forward either by their followers or sometimes even by themselves as saints, right? And, and to be an actual, to be a vetted approved saint is a, is not something that anybody is supposed to be doing for themselves, right? No, uh, no self-respecting saint would ever call themselves a saint, right? That's something saints are. Other people make saints. Saints don't make themselves, right? That has everything to do with uh, the stories that grow up around people after they're gone. Um, but also, we have lots of really interesting cases of uh, people. Or religious orders or towns or, or, or other institutions uh, kind of putting forward figures from the past as saints um, that may or may not have ever existed. So it, the whole subject becomes a really fascinating playground for the historian because there's so many things that we have to sort out. We have to work really hard <laughs> to try to figure out what's going on, who's saying what why are they saying these things? Um, and, you know, reading, reading texts with one eye towards who's benefiting and how, how, how can I tell literally can I take this? Probably not much, uh, versus, you know, taking the story at face value and, and running with it. We have to do all these things at the same time.
0: Um, uh, And as he discussed, I mean, the church is doing this, too. The contemporary reforming early modern church is also trying really hard to figure, because saints are great, but fake saints are bad. And the the Protestants have a lot to say about that. Absolutely. Exactly. And this is precisely this moment when the
1: church is um, putting in place procedures, putting in place and has been, I mean, it's not brand new in this period. This is something that's been developing over the course of centuries, but putting in place procedures and methods and um, uh, institutional apparatus for evaluating all of these things. Um, So there's been some really interesting work done, for example, on the ways in which uh, investigation of recently dead People who have a reputation for holiness. The way in which physical inspection of their bodies and autopsy is used um, as a way of investigating holiness and verifying the kind of status of a person. Um, so the it, the methods are different depending upon if somebody's recently d- dead or if you have a you know a, a alleged late medieval or sorry or like late antique martyr, you know, it's, it's different depending on how, how
0: dead, how long dead somebody is. It kind of, your methods will, will, will vary. Sure. Um, Uncorrupted corpses are, mean different things based on time for (laughs) exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So let's get back to your guy who's St. John of Mata. Well, uh, he
1: was uh, what we don't, You look at the original, like sort of the earliest sources, we don't actually know that much about him. We have to make a distinction between what we know from the earliest sources versus the stories that grow up over the course of the centuries. Um, But he appears to have been um, a uh, uh, originally from Provence in Southern France, uh, appears to have been a uh, professor uh in Paris who according to the ways his legend goes that he had a mystical experience while uh, while um, uh, officiating at Mass and in this experience he saw uh, the figure of Christ uh, and two captives uh, uh, and one of the captives is a white person and the other person captive is a black person. Um, and that this uh, experience of seeing this, this mystical vision uh, led him to found a religious order, the order of the, the most Holy Trinity and of the captives. And this religious order, uh, which is a founded, in, founded in 1198 and still exists, of course, uh, had as its main mission the rescue and redemption from slavery of christian captives who wind up in the hands of non-christian captors so usually that means for the period we're talking about usually it means uh muslims so it could be in whatever part of the islamic world um we might find this happening it's usually especially rescuing christian captives from uh, Islamic territories in North Africa or it might be in parts of Spain that are um, under Muslim control um, it of course changes over time um, so that's the main kind of uh, mission of this, this religious order and that's, that's I mean there are other stories that develop about him as empirical miracle stories and all this stuff but that's the core of it
0: right there well, and, and explains how the order gets its mission as well exactly right? yeah great founding story so uh, <laughs> and so I get all right that's that's Saint that's saint worthy but why do these guys who are Gonzalo and uh, Gonzalo and Jose why do they want to steal his bones?
1: That's a great question I mean why you don't usually bust into the tomb of the founder of your religious order it's that's just not really done I just like to like make it clear that people don't usually do this um, uh, the issue is this is that uh, for all of Saint John of Martha's importance to the Trinitarian order the order never got around to having him canonized. That is, he was a saint in their eyes, but not a canonized saint. And for many hundreds of years, that didn't matter because canonization was was um, a, often a fairly informal matter. But over the course of the late medieval period, and as we move into the early modern period, formal canonization becomes more and more important, um, and that's a papal-controlled process, and in the beginning of by the time we get to the late 16th century, it's getting a little embarrassing, frankly, that their founder isn't canonized and some of their rivals, other orders have gotten or have been dealing with this. Right. And so uh, especially in the the first few decades of the 17th century, in the early 1600s, their key rival order is the mercedarians, the um uh order of uh our what is it the blessed virgin of mercy. Um and they're they're rivals to the Trinitarians. So it's Mercedarians versus Trinitarians. And they're rivals because the Mercedarians have the same mission, right? They're also engaged in rescuing Christian captives from Islamic territories. So the two orders are constantly struggling with each other for over centuries they're suing each other all the time they're forever i mean it's just endless and because they're they're fighting for the same donor base essentially right there's only so much so many donations to go around and both groups want the same amount of money the Mercedarians, however have gotten around they get their their founder canonized now the trinitarians have a problem <laughs> their founder is not formally canonized Uh, It's a real issue. And now you wouldn't normally steal the bones of somebody you're trying to get canonized, but there's a real issue. The problem is that the little church that the bones of St. John of Matha were in wasn't actually under the control of the Trinitarians for reasons that are too boring and lengthy to go into. Uh, It was under the control of the Vatican itself. So the Trinitarians don't control the church. They don't have ready access to the tomb of their founder. And that means that there's nothing in the church that demonstrates any devotion to that saint. They call him a saint, but the Vatican's like, eh, I don't know, <laughs> like nobody seems to care about him. Nobody's visiting the tomb. I don't see any candles here. I don't see any evidence of of any kind of devotion to the saint. Um, and so stealing the bones is a it's a. It's a kind of extreme thing to do, but it's a way of short-circuiting that problem as the pro- the order is working towards the canonization of their founder. Um, it, I don't think it's an entirely successful kind of approach in that they then they have a, this whole new problem of the fact that now the bones have been stolen. They were taken to Rome and Rome is, I mean, excuse me, they were taken to Spain from Rome, totally illegally. There's no record of the extraction, right? So there's none of the documentary apparatus that would be expected. And Rome is going to say, okay, so you say those are the bones of your founder. Now you have to prove it, right? Where before that wasn't an issue, now it's an issue. So... By trying to solve one problem, a, a new problem was created, essentially. And it takes, you know, decades and decades to resolve.
0: Sure. Uh, so, I mean, in the end, is he a saint? Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> they get the the canonization goes through. And he's canonized in 1666. Um, and uh, then the order has, a, it's like there's a kind of mental space. Okay, we got them canonized. Now we could turn around and deal with this problem that we created when we stole the bones um, and begin the process of applying to prove basically a different court case uh, that these, yes, these are the relics of St. John of Motha. Um,
0: it's mess. It's messy. It's not a tidy story, unfortunately. It's not a tidy story, which is part of what makes it such a fun thing to think about and what a, like, a really good book. There's more to this story that I'm not going to go into. We're not going to talk about today, but you listeners, really, you should read this book. It is a nice, quick, enjoyable read. Like this is a book that uh, you you could, this is a, a, a beach read might be a stretch, but I would. I, I would. <laughs> It's definitely the kind of uh, book that I give to people who are like, What's a good history book I can read, you know, who may or may not be historians as well as historians. So
1: well done. Awesome. I love I love the idea of somebody sitting on a on a beach reading about Saint John of Matha. That that tickles me. <laughs>
0: yeah. Like, yeah isn't it? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> all right. So thanks for taking so much time with me. I have just one more question, mm-hmm. which is, uh, well, we talked about it a little before we started recording. You're working on a conference paper. So what's next? What's the new research?
1: Oh, um, well, I, you know, cleaning up a few odds and ends <laughs> from the, the St. John Martha, uh, work, work, uh, but trying to take my work in a totally different connect, connect direction. I, um, I have worked on relics, for like 25 years total and it's time to move into it i'm done with dead bodies and i want to work on live bodies now um and so i am in the beginning process of trying to figure out how to do this but i'm interested in um Priestly bodies, right? And the, 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 the physical body of a priest and especially the, the, the masculine body of the priest, right? That, that priests in the Catholic Church um, must be uh, male. Um, so the priestly body is by necessity a male body. And I'm curious, I'm interested in what is priestly masculinity? What does it mean to be a man and to be a priest? Um, especially in this period, uh, so I'm in the just a, the very beginning stages of this. I did a little research trip earlier this year to go poke around some uh, Episcopal archives that, that uh, in Toledo and in Burgos, uh, looking at records there, especially of uh, priests gone wrong, essentially. Uh, so. Uh, priests who wind up in uh, being investigated uh, by their bishops for things like, oh, you know, old being, first of all, I mean, physical disability is part of it, right? So priests who uh, are getting old and maybe are not able to do the kinds of duties that they they need to do, but also priests who uh, wind up in trouble. There's one fantastic case that I don't know what to do with yet, but of a um, Uh, A priest who's in really bad terms with his neighbors is the late 17th century in Toledo and winds up, you know, he's he's pulling guns on them and ambushing them as they're trying to go out of town to go actually go tell the bishop
0: what he's doing. It's great.
1: So I don't know how to deal with it yet, but that's the
0: plan. (laughs) That's oh, I'm fascinated. I want to know all of (laughs) that. Yeah, masculinity should be very cool to think about, you know, because there's this pastoral, paternalistic kind of business. But from a celibate, yeah, that'll be cool. exactly, exactly. So I'm not sure where it's going, but it's at least everybody's alive, not dead now. Well, that's exciting. Um, and a new project is so exciting; it's nothing but promise. It, it, there's absolutely so many, so many places it could go, and you know, haven't had to write it down yet, which is no, actually not, not yet. <laughs> nothing to write yet. <laughs> That's wonderful. All right. Um listeners, this was the Stolen Bones of St. John of Matha. You can find a link to it on our website. Um and Katie, thanks so much again for taking time to talk to me. Oh thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.